Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. My guest today is on a mission to create social change through conversation. The ultimate high achiever, Nidhi Tawari, she's always excelled at pretty much everything she does. But after a breakdown in college, her world opened up. It sparked a curiosity for mental health and well-being that led her down a path to become a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. Today, she's the founder of Mental Health Matters, a massive 55,000-person club on Clubhouse, which also happens to be where we met. Nitty specializes in this really fascinating therapy called EMDR. On the show, we learn the difference between big T trauma and little t trauma. She also shares tips for self-care, and we explore the neurochemistry behind trauma, including why traumatic experiences often freeze into our memory network. This stuff is mind-blowing. We also talk about survivor blaming and shaming and spiritual bypassing. Don't worry, if you don't know what these things are, Nitty has you covered. So enough waiting, let's jump straight in to the conversation. Nidhi Tawari, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you so much for having me, Billy. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, you know I'm excited. This is a treat. Uh, This is the best way to start the week. We're recording this on a morning for me. I know it's afternoon for you on a Monday. And so let's start with this. I know you're a drummer. You've been drumming for about 10 plus years. I also know you have a, as you've described it, a complicated relationship with music. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I also know you did a challenge about a year ago, maybe not a year ago, called the Hashtag Talented Therapist Challenge. So uh, curious about all of those things and anything you could share on your musical journey. Sure, absolutely. Yes. So I did play the drums. I still do play the drums for the last 10 years. I actually played in a heavy metal band, if you can believe it. And it's oh, awesome. It's really, it was so much fun. It was breaking a lot of gender stereotypes when it comes to women being drummers and particularly in a heavier musical genre. And the complications when it comes to music were because there was a lot of challenges I faced in terms of my confidence when it came to playing. And being a recovering perfectionist, I found that I really struggled with times that I messed up or if I was live on stage and that drumstick flew out of my hand. It was definitely a moment where I would beat myself up. And so with time, I think I kind of struggled with the idea of I'm going to make mistakes 
mistakes, uh, that it's acceptable for me to make those mistakes and the perfectionism and ultimately some of the pressures I felt to perform to the highest degree possible, I think kind of got in the way of my creative abilities. And I actually took a couple of years break from playing because I needed to do some soul searching when it came to music. So I'm happy to say now I'm back in the groove of it and uh, I don't play in a band any longer, but yes, back on the kit. Oh, I want to see some videos. You got to have some videos. I, I I was on your YouTube channel. I didn't see him there. So maybe you have a separate YouTube channel for your heavy metal band, but that's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about your story. I know you're a first generation Indian. Your parents are both Indian, correct? From, from India. What was it like growing up to parents who immigrated here? And then secondly, how has that influenced who you are as a human being today? Yeah, that's a great question, Billy. I mean, I think that for me, growing up to immigrant parents, uh, it was challenging at times, but also quite inspirational. So I'll go back a little bit and share that my parents came here in the 80s. My dad came here on a job as an um, engineer with a local government, Fairfax County government. And my mom had two degrees when she came here to the States pregnant with me. Oh, wow. And yeah, she, I mean, tough journey, right? Like they yeah. came from a pretty affluent background as my dad worked for General Electric in India. And when they came here to the United States, they only had $500 to their name and had to establish themselves in a pretty expensive part of Virginia, right outside of the DC area. Uh, and it was a big, a big challenge for my mom, especially because she came with two degrees and neither of them were honored. So she had put in all these years of work and really didn't amount to much here in the States. Here's a woman with a law degree and an economics degree starting off working at a grocery store as a cashier. And she actually worked her way up to becoming a vice president at Bank of America, got into the finance field, very self-directed and self-motivated. And as a child and, and as a young woman, an adult, seeing that journey of my mom accomplishing her goals and dreams, despite all of the odds and circumstances being against her, really motivated me to want to be able to push myself to achieve whatever I set my mind to. That being said, though, it was always a bit challenging for me towing the line between being American and being Indian as well. And some of the cultural uh, norms are so different with Indian culture compared to American culture. So I felt like I was almost um, like being pulled in so many different directions with being a traditionally raised um, Indian uh, woman here in the States, but then also wanting to fit in so much with my American friends and and navigating that. So yeah, it was it was quite a journey and um, proud to say that I'm the, the daughter of, of immigrant parents, but definitely not without its challenges. Right. Wow. What a great story. And I can only imagine how humbling that must have been for your mother to come here with these incredible degrees, but not being recognized here for that. So I was going to ask, where does this high achiever side of you come from? But apparently I know the answer to that, but maybe can you talk a little bit about you and your story? I know that, you know, you got great grades in school, top of your class. I also know that in college you you hit a, a bit of a, a speed bump because it got to be too much. So as an overachiever, one of the things we're going to talk about today is how we are often as high achievers, we face adversity uh, and we face challenges and burnout and 
Um, it can be very traumatic and we're going to talk about trauma as well. So curious if you could talk a little bit about your journey as a high achiever, but then also your college experience. Absolutely. Well, so in Indian culture, academics are integral. I mean, they are just the primary focus. And so when I was growing up, part of how I would be able to connect with my family and my parents and feel like I was accomplishing something was through my grades and through being able to achieve X thing, getting X scholarship or whatever the case may be. But that pace was unrelenting, right? And at some point in my college career, I went from being such a conservatively raised young woman to very much letting loose. I'll fully acknowledge I partied quite hard in college. I swung very much the opposite direction. And I recognize now reflecting back that it was my way of numbing out some of the anxiety and trauma symptoms that I had been experiencing. So I had gotten this full scholarship because I was a high achiever, as you mentioned, Billy, to go to college to George Mason University. And I was one of 25 in the nation selected for this program. But in my sophomore year, in the middle of my pre-med track, I just stopped showing up to classes and I stopped submitting my schoolwork and I just went very hard on the drinking and then the partying. And it was when I got a letter in the mail from the university program stating that I was at risk of losing my scholarship and potentially losing everything I had worked so hard to achieve that it was a wake up call for me. And it was actually my first um, experience seeing a therapist in college. I went to the university counseling services and discovered that I really struggled deeply with anxiety as well as some trauma-related symptoms. So through the course of doing some cognitive behavioral therapy, getting some tools and skills under my belt, I was able to pull it back together and graduated, um, you know, above the the minimum 3.0 GPA, but it wasn't without struggle. So it was those moments of challenge that motivated me to want to become a therapist myself, uh, change the trajectory of my career from pre-med to being a social worker and gave me some life experience that I could now pull from in relating to my clients and wanting to help them through their own healing journeys as well. Mm, sounds like a transformative time. And not only did it lay the foundation for what you now do as a therapist and also somebody that is trauma informed and understands the reality of trauma and the reality of uh, facing as as you did burnout and this this moment where you kind of hit that wall and you were through the party and you were definitely showing signs of trying to kind of counter <laughs> the feelings that you were having. Uh, but that was numbing what was a, you know, maybe a deep seated thing going on with you. So, so now you have this mission and your mission is to create social change through conversation. When did that mission crystallize for you and how has it evolved over time? Well, I think it, it started to crystallize for me as I left graduate school and went into the field. I saw that there were so many people out there, so many leadership teams and event audiences out there that really didn't touch the idea of mental well-being and this idea of mental health and mental illness. And it became my mission to start to destigmatize these conversations Partly because culturally, right, we don't talk about mental health in so many different cultures, particularly the Indian culture. And I found that it was so impactful to normalize that for people, for them to know that you can be a high achieving leader, you can be a CEO, you could be the biggest entrepreneur in the world. But that doesn't make you immune to the human condition and the struggles of being a human being. So it was as I uh, graduated from graduate school and started to enter the field that I saw 
so many people that I had collaborated with were just not wanting to touch those topics with the 10 foot pole. So I was like, what a great opportunity then for me to be able to not only normalize these discussions, but humanize them, help to make them less intimidating and less technical, jargon based, and much more approachable and uh, tolerable for people to start to discuss and look within themselves. Mm, Look, there's a reason that your club on Clubhouse has grown to over 50,000 members. I don't even can't keep track anymore. I'm just going to say over 50 until it gets to like 75. Then I'll say over 75. <laughs> but uh, and it's a testament to you and your mission and the work that you're doing. That's where we met and we became friends. And, and I know I'm not alone in saying thank you for the work that you're doing. This is Mental Health Awareness Month and I'm fast tracking the release of this episode. I'm actually going to release it next week because of this month being that special month. So let's talk... In a minute, we're going to get into anxiety and then to trauma and talk about both of those. But before we get into those, let's talk about self-care. This is really foundational, especially during the pandemic, as we've been in this mode of like, there's probably a lot of anxiety and fear and doubt and all these things, emotions going on. It's important to pause and remember that we, we can take care of ourselves and we need to take care of ourselves. So what are some ways that we as human beings can positively care for ourselves through some means of self-care? Well, I think that it's so important that we pause, slow things down, especially in a society where achievement and accomplishment is how we judge our character Mm. and our worth, right? And once again, personally in recovery for this myself because I struggle with slowing down. But I started to recognize, especially through that burnout experience we spoke about earlier, that there were so many signals that I missed internally. Uh, My body was starting to really actually get sick quite often. The stress started to take a physical toll on me. And my ability to focus, concentrate, attend to my relationships diminished. Mm -hmm. So I think a couple of really easy ways that we can take care of ourselves is one, we give ourselves the opportunity to make small practices in our day-to-day mindfulness exercises. So I'll give you an example. One of my favorite ones that we do in the mornings, my husband and I have a tradition of having coffee together in the morning. And um, yeah, he's so sweet. My (laughs) husband's the best. I can't wait to meet him. I heard he's a good cook too. So I definitely. (laughs) He makes chocolate souffles, Billy. I mean, he's got it on lock. Dang, you scored. Yeah, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah, we've been together for 15 years. And over these 15 years, we've had a tradition of making coffee together in the mornings. And so what we'll do is we'll We'll grind the beans. So I'm engaging my, my auditory senses by grinding the beans. We'll smell the coffee. So my olfactory you know, senses are being engaged there. I'll notice the cream and sugar and watch the swirl as we stir the coffee. So the point being that we can use and engage our five senses in small routines, like simply making our coffee or stepping out on our deck or balcony in the morning and paying attention to the birds and the, the sway of the leaves with the wind, right? All of those are mindfulness-based exercises. And we often think about mindfulness as 15, 20 minutes of silent yoga or silent meditation. But I want to encourage people to think outside of the box, that it's really about setting ourselves up for for moments of pause, appreciation, gratitude, and savoring, and that those are really key to our own self-care and well-being. Mm, I love that. And I totally agree that sometimes we place this unnecessary bucket on what it should be. It doesn't need to be an hour or 30 minutes out of your day. It could be literally moments So what's another example? I think that's a really great example. What are some other daily habits that we could put into our lives to give us a little bit more of those those moments like you've just described? What are some what would be some other examples? Sure. So I think boundary setting is actually one of the best 
things that we can do for our self-care. And part of being a people pleaser is that we may say yes to way too many things and then we feel burnt out and exhausted yes. by the end of the day, right? So instead, being able to practice, hey, just gently letting people know, I wish that I could attend. I would love to join next time. I just am unable to, to be there today, right? Another example is being able to actually allocate time and space for us to have lunch, an actual 30 minutes of not being on our computers and on our phones, but truly enjoying and savoring our meals. Going out for walks in the evenings can be another form of self-care, right? So thinking once again beyond the massages, the pet mani-pedis that we typically think about, the meditation, but to instead look at how can I really be mindful and present in my day-to-day life and take opportunities to set boundaries and help myself and my nervous system to calm down after a really busy day. Mm. How does social media play into all of this? Because we're getting into anxiety in a minute, but it'll be a nice segue. But the Question I have is how can limiting social media intake help with self-care and what advice do you have? Because let's face it, it can be a stressor uh, and it can lead to unwanted, undesired feelings. What's your suggestion there? I think it's really important that we pay attention to how we're feeling as we're navigating different social media platforms. So for example, I'll use myself, right? Like there are times where after a stressful day, I would get on TikTok or Instagram and just doom scroll. I mean, it was like Mm. constant hours, hours spent just mindlessly scrolling, right? But then I would walk away from some of that content not feeling great. My gut would be in knots, my chest would feel tight, and I would actually come away feeling less cared for than I did when I started. So to set some boundaries there is really, really important. Clubhouse has been another one where I feel, and I know you can relate to this, Billy, like invested so many hours, and I love the platform. But there have been times where if I go through the hallway and there isn't something that resonates with me right off the bat, I'll log off. And that's part of me setting the boundary is if if my friends aren't on the platform, if I don't see you running a room or if I don't see some of my other good friends running a room, I'm going to log off because I don't want to just waste time trying to go through different um, rooms when I could be spending that time with my husband or watching a TV show, something like that. Don't force it. Yeah. If it's not, if it's not speaking to you and then listen to yourself, listen to those clues, which is a great segue into anxiety because Yeah, it could show up as a panic attack, but it doesn't always. There's so many ways that anxiety can manifest itself into our lives. And we experience this if we are in tune with ourselves and, and with our body, we're able to really notice these things a lot more. So what are some other signs of anxiety and how can we best tune in and really listen closely for when they start to appear? Mm, That's a great question. There's so many subtle cues that we miss at the buildup and the escalation of anxiety. For example, your heart rate might kick up a little bit, right? You might notice your palms get sweaty. The jitters, I I do the leg bob, that's what I call it, where I just bounce the leg, right? That's a sign that my anxiety is ramping up. Like I said, my stomach might get in knots or I just may notice these subtle cues. And I remember when I was early in my navigating, uh, being able to navigate anxiety, I missed so many of those cues because I was just so disconnected from my body. So I think step one is really being able to be intentional in pausing and noticing what our internal experience is. The second is the racing thoughts, right? So you mentioned panic attacks, but I think more often when we're thinking about anxiety, it's very past future oriented. And what I mean by that, it's a whole lot of shoulda, coulda, wouldas. 
a lot of, I wish that this could have been different. I wish that I had done this. If only I'd studied more or what if, what if this doesn't go well? What if I mess up this presentation? What if I stutter, right? All of these different thoughts, very rarely is anxiety rooted in what's happening in this moment right here and now. So if we pay attention to the dialogue that's happening internally, are we living in the past or in the future? Well, then we can pause and bring ourselves back to the present, which is actually one of the biggest antidotes to anxiety. Mm. Wow, that's so powerful. So you're either doing the shoulda, coulda, woulda thing or the what if thing. And I totally relate. I'm sure anyone listening right now also relates to that. Okay, so let's talk about being in the here and now. One of the things that I know you advocate for is simply breathing. And you have an exercise, the four square breathing exercise. Can you talk a little bit about what that exercise is to bring us back to that present moment and and what we should be listening for and really doing as a result of, of getting ourselves back into the moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the technique that I use is four, four, six. It's a, definitely a riff off of the four square breathing. And the technique goes like this. You breathe in through your nose for four seconds. You hold in the breath for four seconds and then long exhale through the mouth for six seconds. And what happens, right, is on a physiological level, those shifts of anxiety that I mentioned, the heart rate kicking up, blood pressure kicking up, less oxygen going to the brain, the deep breathing actually counteracts so much of that. And it may take a few goes, but you'll notice a wave of calm comes over you. So I find it to be so helpful. I utilize it in my daily life, and I give it to all my clients as well as a way for us to be able to center ourselves. And then after that, I think it's important that we orient ourselves, right? So I'll maybe pay attention to something that I'm holding in my hand. If I'm sitting on my blanket or snuggled up with it, I'll notice the textures of the blanket, something to anchor me back into the present moment. And it's only once our nervous system is calmed down that we're able to re-engage rational thinking. Mm. That's the, that, I find that that's the common mistake people make, right? We try to talk ourselves through the anxiety before our brain has registered that there isn't an active threat. And we have to remember our brains are intended to protect us from right. threats. So by kicking up like that, it's trying to actually save us and help us to survive. So we have to calm it down before we can think it through. Mm. Love that. And I, I love how you're tying it back to, you know, the physiology and the really the evolutionary reason why that exists. What else, in addition to that breathing exercise and giving ourselves that moment to settle ourselves, what else can someone do that would be helpful if they are having the shoulda, coulda, woulda or the what if or even if they are having a full blown panic attack, which we you know, we know that's not necessarily the most common. The most common are the the first two that I mentioned. What else would you recommend to help with any of those? One of my favorite exercises that I love to do and teach is called the four elements. And this has been created by Elon Shapiro. He's a really famous EMDR therapist, which is an intervention that I specialize in. And the four elements takes you through earth, air, water and fire. So earth is noticing our feet planted firmly on the ground, noticing all the points of contact that our body is making with the seat that we're sitting on or if we're standing as we're just orienting ourselves. Air is that four, four, six breathing. So doing five, 10 of those, being able to help to get oxygen back into our bodies. Water is taking a swish of water and moving it around our mouths, following it down our esophagus into our stomach. And the reason why that's helpful is because when we're anxious or in a trauma moment, our digestion actually shuts off, which is why our mouths get dry. 
So if we swish the water, it actually calms the nervous system down pretty quickly. And then fire is the last one. And that's going to be really embodying and remembering a pleasant memory, allowing it to come over you like honey over a honeycomb from head to toe. And just noticing the relaxation sensations that come as we think about that moment we were on vacation in Cancun or that moment that we were super successful giving that interview or that talk, right? What, something that's really positive that resonates with us will also help to calm the nervous system down. So it's kind of a combination of different techniques we've talked about, but I find that it gives you enough of a bearing and a gauge of what's happening around you and internally that it helps to ground you back in the present. You know, I love me some frameworks. So that was that was brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so let's dive into trauma. What exactly is trauma? How would you define it? I mean, I think we all have different ideas of what trauma is, but there's, there's something that you highlight, which I think is really important, and that is the difference between big T trauma and little t trauma. So maybe give us a definition and then uh, as well as give us a little bit of the framework of why there's big T and little t trauma. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So when we traditionally think about trauma, I think most people listening to this podcast are thinking, I don't have trauma. I've never been to war. I've never had a natural disaster happen. But I want to broaden the lens of what traumatic experiences really are. When we think about traumatic experiences, we have to be thinking about anything that is too much, too fast, or too soon for the nervous system to handle. So what that means is that instances of bullying can be traumatic. Divorce, a messy divorce, can be a traumatic experience. Sudden grief and loss are traumatic experiences, right? And that trauma is experienced differently from one person to the next. So for example, two people could survive the exact same traumatic event and have completely different reactions and completely different repercussions and uh, ripple effects from that traumatic experience. So the idea of big T traumas are the war, right? The war traumas, the, the natural disasters, domestic violence, sexual assault, right? But the little T's are the things that I just mentioned. The moments that we went up to speak in front of the class and we were you know, reprimanded for not doing well enough. The moments that our parents didn't give us the emotional support that perhaps we needed right? Those are all traumatic experiences. And one other thing I'll add in there is that trauma isn't just what happens to us. It's also what didn't happen for us. And what that means is those instances where we didn't get nurturing, we didn't feel supported by our caregivers. Those are also considered traumatic experiences. Mm, okay. Love, love that explanation. So how are traumatic experiences stored neurologically, because I think there's something to be mentioned on that front. And then we'll get into the, your, your area of specialty EMDR, which is fascinating to me. So let's talk a little bit about like the, the memory side of traumatic experiences. Sure. So memory is actually encoded in every moment, even in this moment, Billy, as we're talking, we're developing memories as we converse, right? So each moment day to day, new memories are formed. But here's the thing with traumatic experiences those memory networks actually get frozen and stuck with not so helpful information. So for example, when you have a traumatic experience, that memory now is encoded with a disturbing image, a negative belief about ourselves, like it was my fault or I wasn't good enough, right? I'm not good enough. It's stored with negative emotions like fear, panic, anxiety, and it's also stored with body sensations. So muscle tension, headaches, stomach aches, all of those are tied traditionally to the traumatic experience. Now, in our 
dream state, rapid eye movement state, which we go through every night. If you've ever had dreams before, you've been in REM sleep. That's our brain's natural way of being able to process through experiences day to day. But with traumatic memories, they don't get processed out the same way that other memories do because they're frozen. So that's where EMDR comes in as a way to be able to move through those traumatic experiences. Yeah. So this is so fascinating to me because I had no idea this form of therapy existed prior to doing a bit of homework on you and what you're doing. And I'm like, wow, it makes so much sense because when we're dreaming, we're processing. It's so important to have REM sleep, right? We know that the rapid eye movement, we all hear that. And it's like, this is your deep, you know, when you're, you're having these, these, you know, you're kind of making sense of things and you're having these dreams that are like, that are tied some in some way to what's going on in your life and you're processing. But with traumatic experiences, often, as you said, they, they become frozen. So tell us a little bit about this, this form of therapy. How did you find it? How did you, why did you decide to embrace it? And how have you seen it work its wonders? And I know you've had a ton of success for, after doing it for years on hundreds of people. Why does it work so well? So uh, this is all great questions, right? Because EMDR is kind of like the secret sauce that people don't typically think about. It stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And the, the idea and the theory behind it is that we use rapid eye movement. So it's something similar to this, um, which I'm not getting the full movement, but it's, uh, it's the eyes of the client track where, what our, our, our hands are doing. And it's supposed to mimic REM sleep. So if you've ever seen your child go to bed, or if you've ever seen a partner or even a pet, right, sleep, uh, and they're in dream state, you'll notice that underneath their eyelids, their eyes move back and forth. That's their brain processing and desensitizing naturally day-to-day experiences. So in a fully controlled, everybody who's a client of EMDR is fully present, they're essentially evoking those memory networks and the brain is starting to bring in helpful adaptive information. So there's a protocol that I follow. At this point, it's memorized, right? Because I've been doing it for a few years, but it essentially helps the brain to target specific components of the memory, including that image, that negative belief about self, those negative emotions and those negative body sensations. And what happens is that the disturbing material gets processed through and all of this helpful information shifts the memory. So it's stored differently now. So for example, if you started with a car accident and you came away from that car accident feeling as though it was my fault, I should have been paying more attention. I was on my phone. It was my fault. Well, instead, you may come away saying, I did the best I could in that moment. And now I've learned how to be able to cope and manage differently. I won't be on my phone going forward, right? That accident wasn't fully my fault. The other person was at fault too. So now all of a sudden, the memory isn't quite as charged. It's not that you forget about the experience. It's that when you reflect back on the experience now, it no longer evokes the same PTSD symptoms, right? And so I found this intervention actually really early in my career when I was in graduate school. And one of my mentors, Alex Amorin, I did an internship with a sexual assault resource agency, and she had just gotten trained in this intervention. And I'd been working with adults, and uh, up until that point, pre- predominantly with children and adolescents. And the techniques that I had learned for kids and teens just weren't applicable to adults. So I was like, okay, how am I going to help these adults to cope with their PTSD symptoms? So I got trained and I actually ended up getting a grant. Um, I didn't have to pay for it. It was funded through the the job that I had at the time uh, for me to get trained. And what I've seen personally, I've gone to an EMDR therapist for many years myself, as well as professionally and working with my clients. 
oh my gosh, Billy, like the, the before and after is just tremendous. I mean, people have come from some of the most deep, dark, traumatic experiences that you could ever imagine that have impeded their functioning for years to all of a sudden now being able to function in a completely different way and making sense of an experience that didn't make sense before. So I just think it's it's an amazing intervention. It's got 30 years of research behind it. It's the top evidence-based intervention for the National Institutes of Health, World Health Organization, the Veterans Associations here in the United States. I mean, it's just a tremendous, tremendous framework with which to treat and help PTSD. I'm so excited that you are doing this and that you're uh, spreading the word about it too. Like uh, to me, it sounds like what a wonderful, wonderful way to help those who have experienced trauma in their lives and to be able to cope and be able to get to the other side of that trauma. In a minute, we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that you mentioned on Clubhouse, which is trauma dumping. But before we do, I want to talk about this other concept called intergenerational trauma, which is I know something that you speak on. And when we, and just collectively as human beings, when we deal with our own trauma or when we cope with our own trauma, uh, we are potentially preventing intergenerational trauma. Can you talk a little bit about when we, when we go to therapy or when we have uh, the ability to work on ourselves, it could, it could help us, not, not just us, but future generations. For sure. Yeah, I think that we have the capacity to break some of these cycles. So if in past generations, um, let's say that abuse was something that was common, right? Well, then we have the option with our generation to say, okay, wait a second, if I had experienced that, I don't want to perpetuate those patterns any longer. And so in the same way that trauma can be passed down intergenerationally, healing can also be passed down intergenerationally. And there have been some really fascinating studies uh, conducted on epigenetics, which is this idea that our genetic makeup actually shifts as a result of traumatic experiences. And then that shifted genome is actually uh, transferred as we have kids and the next generation comes about, that it's passed down. So some of these studies were conducted during the Holocaust and post-Holocaust, and they found that there were actual DNA shifts, the methylation, uh, which is a technical term for something that happens with our DNA, changed. Wow. But they also found, right? Amazing. I mean, is that a biological level? Amazing. I'm just floored right now. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And so if you look at some of those studies, what they also found, though, is after a couple of generations and people went through therapy to be able to help heal their PTSD symptoms that the healing also was trans transferred genetically. So that's what we're talking about when we're speaking on intergenerational trauma. It's the idea that we're not doomed to repeat the same patterns and cycles that of generations past. And that what it really takes is the insight and awareness to see, ooh, I didn't love the way that these particular aspects of my childhood played out. I don't want to repeat that. So I'm going to do the healing work. And I'm going to learn different ways of parenting and connecting with my kids now so mm. that they don't have to live through that as well. Yeah. So it's not only helping, you know, ourselves, but it's helping future generations after us. And I, from a biological perspective, too, that's fascinating. Genetic perspective. Wow. OK, so how does trauma show up? Not the experience itself, but the post experience. We've all heard of post-traumatic stress disorder but what are some ways, I think a lot of us have what we talk, you know, think about the big T, oh, I haven't had, you know, I wasn't at this active shooter event or I wasn't at, 
you know, in war. And so you just, you don't think of it in the way that maybe you should, but there's other types of traumatic events. So how, what should we be looking for from a, a life functioning standpoint, from a day-to-day life standpoint to maybe start to say, you know what, perhaps there is something that happened, a traumatic event or experience in my life, which has led me to act or be a certain way in my life today. What should we be looking out for? Mm. Well, so one of my mentors, Dini Laliotis, she's a master EMDR clinician, internationally known. She say, says that if it's hysterical, it's historical. So that means that when we have a strong reaction to something, all of a sudden now we're yelling or we're feeling really upset, we have to think back to whether this is a familiar feeling. And I would say 99% of the time, it's something from our past that is bubbling back up to the surface in our present day. So for example, some of the common themes that I see personally as well as professionally is interpersonal challenges. So if we had uh, earlier on in our lives relationships where communication was a struggle, right? Perhaps we had a partner that was hypercritical of us. Um, they may have you know, chastised us for certain things that we said or did. Well, coming into new relationships, we may carry that same framework and mentality. So when our partner then goes to give us feedback, we react strongly because we're anticipating that they're going to criticize, that they're going to be harsh towards us. So that reaction that's so strong in that moment in the present day is actually linked back to our, our past relationship experiences. And I find that interpersonal challenges, is actually, they're actually super common. And it's not just in, in terms of our romantic relationships. It can show up in our work relationships. So as people pleasers, some people, you know, maybe really struggle with uh, saying no. Well, if your boss is asking you to take on another task and you're a people pleaser, chances are you're not going to say no to it. But then instead you feel resentful and frustrated because your plate is already stacked this high and you don't have the capacity to take on something else. So recognizing that the reason why you're saying yes in that moment is because your pattern of interaction with people has been to people please as a way to get your needs met. That's really important. That ability to mentalize what our internal experiences, I think, is so, so key. So, yeah, just remembering if it's hysterical, if it's something that's coming up in the present day, strong reaction, likely it's historical. Yeah, what a great framework. So when we think about history, I think the first thing that we can think about is childhood and the events that happen in our childhood. So important. And there's this framework, ACEs. Uh, what, what does that mean? And for, for those that don't know or are unfamiliar with ACEs, what is that? So ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, they, they, de- they derive this term from a landmark study conducted by Kaiser Permanente probably about a decade ago, 10, 20 years ago. And what they did is they studied adults and what their childhood experiences were. And in the questionnaire, which you can Google and find online, get your ACEs score, you'll see that there's certain traumatic experiences like growing up in a household with an alcoholic parent or having instability in housing, going through divorce, things like that that are on that questionnaire. And what they found is that if you had a high ACEs score, that typically correlated with more challenging health outcomes and mental health outcomes. So the incidences of depression and anxiety and traumatic reactions increased. Also, on a physiological level, the instances of heart disease, of diabetes, of various health conditions actually increased. Chronic illness increased Mm. and it correlated with those high ACEs scores. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay. So 
this is maybe a silly question, maybe not, but what does it mean to be trauma-informed? So I think that being trauma-informed is having an understanding of how trauma affects the brain and body, and then being able to have an understanding of what's helpful versus maybe not so helpful to say to an individual who is struggling with a trauma reaction. Um, so something that's helpful, right, to say to someone is, you know, hey, I, I want to be able to listen to your experience, and I'm here to support you. You know, I can't imagine what you're going through, but I'm here, right? versus saying to somebody, you always react this way, and I don't know why you feel so strongly about this, and you should just get over it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. It's been 10 years. Why aren't you over this yet, right? So being trauma-informed is understanding that trauma doesn't just resolve itself, right? Typically, that's not the case. That because it's stored in the brain and body, it's going to come back up in different circumstances. And to be able to understand that telling someone to just get over it is actually more harmful and can add another layer of trauma onto their experience. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so with you on that. So th- this is a, this is a good segue to this, this ne- next topic that I want to talk about, which is some of the things that happen uh, quite regularly that we should be aware of. One is survivor blaming and shaming. Can you talk a little bit about that and why we should be aware of this? Yes, I think this is such an important topic because we we tend, especially in instances of sexual assault, we tend to blame the survivor. We tend to ask questions about what were you wearing? Oh, were you walking alone at night? Did you did you play? Did you know this person well enough? What were you drinking? Right. Those are very common questions and they're kind of messed up questions to ask. Right. Because ultimately the onus needs to be on the perpetrator. We should be asking, why did the perpetrator do these things? Not why did the survivor wear what they were wearing, right? And so I think that uh, what I see commonly happening is it does add another traumatic component. Because when somebody has shared something that has been so difficult and that often is repressed within them, they're hoping for support. And when we instead ask them these questions, we're insinuating that they did something, to deserve for this to happen. And that can't be the messaging that we use when we're talking to survivors. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And it's such a great point. Uh, I think that we, we need to be a lot more aware of how we show up and how we interact with people that have gone through traumatic experience, even if our intentions are in the right place. Another example of this is spiritual bypassing where your intentions might be in the right place, but the actual outcome doesn't meet that, that intention. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Spiritual bypassing is this idea that we chalk up everything as meant to be. So for example, if you lost a sibling, all of a sudden people will come up to you, and I'm sure people have experienced this, where it's like, oh, well, this is all part of God's plan. Oh, you were meant to go through this struggle in order to learn and grow. And while that may feel helpful to say to someone, It's actually not in a lot of circumstances because there is no reason why somebody suddenly passed away, right? There's no lesson to be learned from it. There's no strength to be gained. It's a traumatic, terrible experience, and we have to acknowledge it as such. And sometimes when we're trying to put this toxic positivity spin on things, this idea that everything has to be framed as, oh, you know, you're going to come out this the other side feeling so much better, it actually is harmful to the other person because what they really need is for someone to say, I'm so sorry that you went through this and there's no rhyme or reason for it. And it's okay that you're grieving. So yeah, I think spiritual bypassing is something that's well-intentioned, but perhaps isn't received the way that we may intend for it to be received. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, another another great insight. Uh, I'm so so grateful for all of these insights, and we're gonna we're gonna wind down here with a couple final questions. One thing that I think is really important to mention is this idea, and you highlight this of thinking that somebody can't be a perpetrator or abuser because they're they're so nice, they're so nice, and and you highlight that just because someone's nice doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing something that's wrong. And doesn't mean that they're not capable of being that abuser. And frankly speaking, it's quite frequent where somebody shows outwardly a certain way, but in uh, reality, they're very different when you look at what they've done. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's important to note. Yes. Yes. I think it's so common that because it's a family member or a neighbor or a teacher or a principal or whoever it is, right? Someone who's in an authority figure position, that they have a persona that is very charming. And that's actually part of, unfortunately, the the profile sometimes of people who perpetrate, right? They present as so kind-hearted and community leaders. And so then what happens is when somebody discloses to a family member or someone close to them that something has happened that was traumatic, the instinctual response is, no, they would never do that. What? You mean John? John would never do that, right? John is such a great upstanding citizen. But the reality is we don't know who people are behind the scenes. So instead of doubting what somebody is saying, to instead pause and and hold back that initial reaction to ask more questions. Oh my gosh, really? What happened? Right? Or, or if you're okay with speaking about it, I'm here to listen. And as opposed to jumping to the conclusion that just because we hold somebody in high esteem, they're not capable of doing harm. An example I'll give, Billy, is John Wayne Gacy, right? This guy was a, a church community member. He was held on a pedestal in his community and he was actually a serial killer, right? And so every nobody he what he went undiscovered for so many years because people couldn't believe that he would do something like that. And think about how many people wouldn't have been harmed had we not doubted that he was capable of of harm, right? So I think it's so important that we don't just jump to conclusions and instead lean in when somebody's disclosing something. Yeah, no. <sighs> So, so, so true. And I think there's no shortage of examples, unfortunately, and sadly, even in the church. And, you know, you look at so many people who were trusted, who were revered, who were loved. And then you look at the atrocities and the, and the terrible things they did to, to, to people and to create these traumatic events and experiences. It's so, so sad. And so don't just assume that someone is only one way. Yeah, they can be quote unquote nice but they could also be something horrific. That's right. I think that often there's a grooming pattern that happens too. So people are extremely nice, right? They, they reward certain types of behavior because they're trying to groom, especially children, right, to be okay with abuse. And the grooming comes from being really nice and sweet and giving candy and all of these things, right? Like uh, spending extra time making a kid feel special. We can't underestimate that the, these behaviors can come off as somebody being so kind and nurturing, but it behind the scenes, it's actually being used to harm. So yes, thank you for drawing attention to this important topic. Yeah, absolutely. It's you. I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, learning from you. And I, as you know, I love learning about what, you know, each, each person I bring on the show, I want to learn as much as I can about them. And thank you for the work you're doing. Should everyone have a therapist? And if so, what's the best way to find the right therapist 
for you, because we're all unique individuals, you need to find the right fit. Um, so a two-part question, should we all have a therapist? And then how do we find the right one? I may be a little biased, but I agree. (laughs) Absolutely. Everyone should have a therapist. Everyone should have a therapist. We all need a neutral, confidential space to whom we can discuss some of our our triumphs as well as as our challenges, right? And I think for for everyone out there who is questioning, oh, well, but are my challenges big enough or are they important enough to discuss – Absolutely. If you're experiencing any type of stress, if you feel like you just need a sounding board for decision making, whatever the case may be, right? If you're having challenges in your relationship, go to see a therapist because it's just such a great opportunity to connect with someone, get that neutral feedback, and for your business to not be spread to other people like it does sometimes when we open up to family or to friends. Um, So the places where you can find a therapist, there's just a multitude of options. Psychologytoday.com is a great one. Therapyforblackgirls.com is a great one. Openpathcollective.com or .org, I think it might be, uh, is a great resource for individuals who may not have health insurance. They provide services on a sliding scale. So low cost services for people that may not have insurance on board. And then in terms of fit, you know, I think sometimes people get discouraged when they meet with a therapist and they just don't feel super comfortable and it doesn't click. So my first tip there is give it a couple of sessions. The first session is always going to be information gathering, but then give it a couple beyond that. And if you're feeling as though I don't, I don't feel a hundred percent comfortable or as though I can be truthful, it's okay to, to mention that and then to seek out another therapist. I think some of the hallmarks of a really strong therapeutic relationship is that you feel seen and heard, that the therapist has the specialization for the challenges that you're particularly encountering. So if you have a traumatic experience, you don't want to go to somebody who specializes just in depression, right? You want to find someone who has specialized training in your particular uh, presenting concern. And then the last piece being that you feel like you can be forthright. Therapy only works for you if you put in the effort and if you're completely open and honest. You have to be able to feel comfortable sharing some of those less comfortable topics and and experiences in order to get the traction and the movement that you'd like to see and to make progress. Uh, Great tips. Okay. So last question, Nitty, is this. If you can reflect and think a little bit about your own style and approach as a therapist, how are you maybe a little bit different or unique? What's your style or approach that would be worth sharing that you think you know, maybe be a little bit different than what others are doing. Yeah. So when anytime I'm doing an intake with my clients at potential clients, I let them know I am not your typical therapist. I'm not going to be the one that sits there silently and says, how does that make you feel? <laughs> like it's just not my style. <laughs> so I tell all of my clients, I use a lot of humor. I am, I am the cursing therapist. I drop F-bombs in my sessions if my clients are okay with it. And they've given me that okay. Right? We laugh. I can't tell you how many times we like belly laugh in our sessions together. And that doesn't mean we don't do the hard work. In fact, I'm helping people with a lot of complex trauma, but I think it's so important to be disarming. So that's kind of what makes me unique is I want to be approachable. I want to be somebody who people can just feel super comfortable with. And I want to be that humorous uh, person that I am in my real life as well as in my session. I love that. I think it's fantastic to bring humor. I mean, just because you're going to be talking about traumatic experiences doesn't mean that humor can't be a part as well. Uh, it's not to detract or take away from the serious conversations. It's actually to allow those conversations to be more free and more open. And I 
Love that. I love the curse. I see like a domain, the cursing therapist.com. <laughs> Speaking of domains, you could go to Nitty Tawari LCSW.com. That's N I D H I T E W A R I L C S W.com. You're also on Facebook. You're on Instagram. You're on Clubhouse. And you also have a few YouTube videos. I want more YouTube videos. I'm putting a I'm putting a call out. More more nitty YouTube videos. Unless <laughs> unless I missed them, I want I want more because they were so so good and valuable. And I learned oh, a lot by watching them. Where else can people find you? So definitely all my handles, right? It's usually at Nitty Tawari LCSW. So Instagram at Nitty Tawari LCSW, Facebook at Nitty Tawari LCSW, Clubhouse at Nitty Tawari LCSW. Twitter, though, is my uh, not typical handle. That one is at LCSW Nitty because I guess somebody took my handle before. Well, so how did somebody take your – who has Nitty Tawari LCSW? But somebody has it. Um, <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> Okay. But yeah, and then if you want to find me on Clubhouse in particular, um, you can join my club, Mental Health Matters. Billy, you mentioned that we have over 55,000, about 55,000 members now. Um, and I hold conversations every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. The one this upcoming weekend is going to actually be about intergenerational trauma. I'm bringing okay. my mentor, internationally acclaimed uh, trauma therapist and EMDR expert, Ana Gomez. And so, Billy, if you'd like to join, love to have you. And anybody else who'd like to be there, we'd love to have you join us well ah thank you amazing 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 so i'm going to allow you to do your thing and bring it home with the final word anything you'd like to share based on the conversation we've had you know i'm a massive massive fan of you of your energy of your spirit of the work you're doing of the mission you're serving and i want to give you the final word over to you Oh, well, first off, let me thank you, Billy, so much for having me here. I've been so excited to do Inside Out, and I just I can't wait uh, to hear this episode. For for those of you who are listening, you know, I want to I want to just put it out there that everyone at some point in time is going to experience mental health challenges. And I want you to know that one, you're not alone at all, that it's just part of the human experience. And two, that there's always support out there. So if you've ever felt as though I don't know who to reach out to, or should I get the support, please go reach out, seek a therapist, seek out a psychiatrist, because it will transform your life. It'll give you back agency. It'll empower you to make different choices and decisions in your life. And the past will no longer take over your present and your future. So thanks again, Billy, for having me. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful to you. And, I, and I'll, I'll leave with a quote from you, which is, therapy is not a pair of sweatpants. It's not one size fits all. So go find somebody that's right for you. Nitty's giving some amazing, amazing tips and frameworks to find somebody. And you don't need to have the, a reason, quote unquote reason to do it. Because to your point, Nitty, having somebody to share things with that's not biased, that's that's not you know somebody that's already in your life that, that can listen objectively. Uh, I, I grew up, my, my stepmom uh, was, is a therapist. And so I've been around therapy my whole life and I, I'm a, and my dad uh, studied educational psychology. So I've been, he's got a PhD. So I've been around this space. I'm a huge believer in the power of conversation and you are doing that every single day to create social change. Nidhi Tawari, thank you for being on Inside Out. Oh, thanks, Billy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. 
If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.